Welcome to Investing for Ocean Impact, the podcast making the business case for conserving our ocean. I'm Dorothy Herr. Coastlines are vital regions for developing nature-based solutions. We know them primarily as solutions to preserving mangrove swamps or restoring degraded marshes. But they can also be combined with heavy or grey infrastructure, like ports or seawalls. When it comes to these grey solutions, these colossal collections of concrete, they might seem like they're destined to be truly terrible for the environment. But is it actually possible to make them work for the benefit of the planet? Welcome to the world of green-grey infrastructure. Today, I'm joined by an expert on green-grey infrastructure, Margot Clarvis, Head of Nature-Based Solutions at Sequest Capital. Hi, great to be here. As well as green-grey entrepreneur, Ido Sella, co-founder and CEO of Econcrete. Hey, Dorothy. Great to be here as well. Margot, let's start with you. Can you please move us into the field of green-grey infrastructure? What is that? Yeah, absolutely. So green-grey infrastructure is essentially the combination of, you know, what we well recognise as conventional infrastructure assets. So think roads, coastal defences, such as seawalls, you know, wastewater facilities, stormwater infrastructure, ports, you know, you name it. But that essentially sort of work with and integrate uh, nature, such as mangroves, reefs, wetlands, forests, you know, vegetation in general, to really either protect those assets or to enhance the infrastructure service delivery of those assets. A lot of the examples that we see are from the sort of US, Europe. We're seeing increasing examples now in in other parts of the world as well. The integration of seawalls with mangroves, for example. So in Miami, they're integrating mangroves into a living shoreline. And and this is all to improve the coastal defense of, of Miami. Another really common approach that you'll see is constructed wetlands, for example, or forests that are being used as part of either wastewater infrastructure or stormwater infrastructure. So those are just sort of the range, you know, they're not, I realise they're not all coastal, but I think it's important for people to understand that this is something that works very, very well with coastal ecosystems, but also in non-coastal urban contexts as well. And do you feel that there is really a a big uptake of these green-grey infrastructure solution also across the world? Or where do we stand in terms of deployment? Yeah, so the work that um, we did earlier this year, or that um, I did earlier this year with Conservation International looking at this, we looked at about 100 projects that were already sort of implemented, constructed and implemented, not just as sort of part of policy processes. There is definitely a concentration in the US and in Europe But there were a significant number of projects also, you know, in Africa, in Beira, for example, in Mozambique, there's a huge sort of urban green-grey infrastructure approach there. So the traction, I think, is growing. There's a growing body of evidence for these projects. 
However, I think we are at a point where a lot of those projects are, you know, they're public infrastructure, they're funded by the World Bank, you know, the sort of that's where we are with it. And obviously, infrastructure in general tends to be more heavily financed by the public sector. But this is by no means, this is a drop in the ocean in comparison to, you know, if we think about infrastructure projects globally. So then, Ido, this must be where Econcrete comes in, right? This is completely what we're dealing with, but we're basically dealing with uh, the more hard part of it. So the vertical surfaces, the working waterfronts. How can we harness ports, bridge foundations, seawalls, marinas to provide us ecosystem services on top of their usual operation? In, in the past, it was how when we, there is a decision taken to build an infrastructure, it was uh, what will be the impact on the environment. Now, it's not just what will be the impact on the environment, it's how can we also support the environment while it's operating. And why did you focus on working with concrete? 70% of coastal infrastructure worldwide are concrete-based. And concrete structures are usually associated with a low biodiversity, dominance of invasive species, and because of that also uh, affecting the water quality. Different researchers that were focusing on that problem, a lot of them were dealing with the complexity of the surface. If we increase the complexity of the surface, we create more uh, microhabitats, more niches, and more uh, uh, biology can grow on it. The problem is that coastal infrastructure, in general, are hotspots for invasive species. And this is what was our starting point. How can we identify the issues with concrete? How can we tackle them? Make sure that it can be implemented by the industry and by doing this, hopefully changing the way our future waterfronts will look and function. And the way we did it is uh, through a test, uh, several tests of, of larvae, babies of corals and oysters and barnacles. And we identified the concrete mixes that basically promoted the growth of those organisms better than the others. Once we did that, we went into the next phase of how can we increase the surface complexity, but doing this while we're in compliance with the requirements of coastal construction. So this took us seven years almost. And at the end, we found a technology that can be implemented to any concrete casting. And it's not a, the case that we are pulling the biology. What we're doing is we're neutralizing the surface. We're neutralizing those elements within the concrete that are negatively affecting the biology. And because of that, the technology can be applicable uh, worldwide. And when you talk about the biology, what actual effects do you observe? So when we, we apply the technology in tropical environment, for example, we see an increase in the uh, number of species of corals that are settling on the concrete. When we apply that, for example, in temperate area like pier piles in New York, suddenly we saw uh, species that were not found within New York Harbor coming back, like the eastern oyster. So we're getting more species. By doing this, they're uh, by competition, reducing the dominance of those invasive species that were there before. So by bringing local species back to the working waterfronts, to the cities, etc., we're allowing better ecosystem services. Listening to Ido talk about this, I think just raises a really important point that affects the uptake of green-grey infrastructure, essentially. And that is... Um, you know, you're talking about developing new materials and then needing to have those materials sort of accepted by the standards that are in place. And sounds like you're working across multiple different countries and geographic regions. So I presume you're dealing with a whole host of different standards as well. And not only did these solutions remain 
quite niche, quite poorly understood in the sort of conventional engineering community and finance world. And this is a really big barrier to, you know, it not being a drop in the ocean. But this also, these examples aren't integrated into engineering guidance, into the standards and sort of specifications that engineers have to follow when they are designing a port or marina or whatever it might be. So I'd love to hear Ido's perspective, you know, on the experience that he's had in trying to get this accepted, this sort of novel technology essentially accepted, and how he's experienced that as sort of a key barrier to, to his own business. You hit it right on. So we're dealing with an industry which is a very conservative, liability-driven built for longer and longer time span and, and operational time. So, so most of the infrastructure worldwide now are built for 60 years, and now it's going into 120 years design life. Implementing any changes into this will not go through novel technologies and new materials. and It's not going to work. Um, the only way to do it and to break through is to hide our biological hat and put our engineering hat, and we're doing this basically getting engineers to support us and be in line with the specification. In order to do this, you need to make sure that whatever you put out there in the, in, in the market will comply with the standards. And you need to identify the standards that you want to work with. So for example, we work with the British standard, the European standard, the American standard, Australian standards. And we work with at least 90% of the large engineering firms in the world. And they're looking for ways for what we call responsible construction. There is an in internal process. I think it's coming also from the change in generations of, uh, of the engineers. It's, it's a core issue for them to address those environmental processes and, and, and impact. And they are looking for solutions that just need to make sure that those solutions are complying with uh, uh, their requirements. Margot, building off this point about performance, Do nature-based solutions have a role to play for these really long-term infrastructure requirements? Yeah, and um, I mean, just listening to those numbers, you know, having to design for 120 years now, and you just think about what are the changes <laughs> that we're going to see over those 120 years. You know, I don't think this has been mentioned, but obviously the, you know, one of the big benefits of green-gray infrastructure and of nature-based infrastructure is that, it has the flexibility. You know, once you've put concrete in the ground, you've put concrete in the ground. And the flexibility and the adaptability of integrating a more ecosystem-based approach into that as part of an adaptive management of your infrastructure, I think is really critical. And I think this isn't a finance challenge. You know, the numbers are there in terms of how much cheaper it is to integrate ecosystem, you know, whether it's mangroves or something else, nature-based infrastructure tends to be about 50% cheaper than traditional grey infrastructure and like you know, significantly better value. So the evidence is very strong to show that these solutions, they are cheaper, they are more flexible, they are more cost-effective over the long term. Yes, they're probably more complicated in certain ways in terms of having to engage with communities, you know, dealing with um, dynamics of ecosystems, not just, you know, how is concrete going to respond to a sudden wave height and so forth. But I think the issue is very much what we were discussing with Edo. It's about having these alternative processes that uh, and approaches that have less of a evidence base in the specs and in the standards. You know, in, in our conversations that we were having around the financing barriers to this, 
the predominant barriers were actually to do with the engineering guidance. And, and that's sort of the one of the really, really big challenges. I want to emphasize them because I completely, completely agree with you. And, and I'm not a supporter of concrete. <laughs> the reason we, we decided to go through the route that we went through is because we don't like concrete structures. And we need to be very, very careful with all this great green discussion about greenwash. It's crucial that we'll be very, very careful because it needs to be defined where and when you apply different technologies. You go into concrete as a last resort, and this needs to be the guideline. So you, you should invest more and in restore ecosystems that can provide you with the same benefits. You should allocate the funding. But when you get to the point that you need to go vertical, please build it in a responsible way. And don't use the ability now of concrete's infrastructure to support ecosystem services at a certain level as an excuse of using them as opposed to a nature-based solution. So it needs to be very, very clear that the, the decision process need to be refined. First of all, you go through those processes of identifying the needs, prioritizing the most important uh, part, and only when you get to the last resort, then also make sure that you're uh, addressing how the infrastructure is built. Because what we see now worldwide is in a lot of places, Europe, US, uh, and others, uh, India, there is a, a thoughtful discussion, there is a mitigation discussion, but when a decision is taken to go into working waterfronts, nobody is basically providing the asset owner or the engineering firms or, or the construction company with a set of tools when they are applying this and they're, when they're building the technology. And this is, this is the niche that we work with, and this is where we feel comfortable working. So can you explain a bit further how you actually interact with your clients and how do you explain the benefits of e-concrete compared to normal concrete? We usually um, meet the project when the decision of going into hard infrastructure was already taken. And for them, when there is a decision, they will look now, because of different reasons, for reducing environmental impact. The reason that we see projects like we are discussing mostly in Europe and in the US is because there is environmental regulations that pushing the industry to find solutions that will reduce their ecological footprint. And this is when usually they approached us. We are top down. We're integrating into project really at the, at the beginning, not because there is an actual need for us to be in that process, but when they budget the process, they need to budget those uh, technologies in very early. Once the bid is out and the construction company are there, there's no way of specifying ecological or environmental technologies back. They need to be included before the tender is coming out. And I, I must say that in most of the projects, I can say 90, 95% of the projects that we're working on or worked on, we provide financial benefits to our clients. And although they look to building them in the responsible way, in the better way, what is basically pushing them towards this is that it will reduce cost at the project level. And although they're going to um, spend more on the construction, at the project level, there's going to be a saving because of permitting, because of mitigation requirements, etc. Margot, let's switch to the finance side of this discussion. Where do you see opportunities to engage with other players in the financial world? 
I would like to see a much bigger commitment by institutions like the World Bank and the IFC and so forth to actually, you know, this should be mainstreamed. They should not be financing infrastructure projects that haven't gone through some kind of review process in relation to actually where are there opportunities from a long-term climate and financial resilience perspective of paying back that asset to actually integrate these kinds of solutions. And I know, you know, I don't I don't want to be too harsh. I, you know, the World Bank's done an enormous amount of work on this. IFC is starting to get interested in this, but I just I really think this is an area where ADB, IFC, World Bank, all these guys, they just they really need to be looking at like how does this become part of the business and the way that gender is now mainstreamed, you know, across those banks. How does this become such a core part of the infrastructure that they're financing? So I think that is just a, a slight aside. It's not about the private sector per se. I mean, IFC is. But um, I think what Ido's saying about the interest of companies, infrastructure companies and construction companies from a sort of greening perspective really resonates with some of the infrastructure investors that we were talking to. They are very, very interested in trying to understand how they can get engaged in this area but right now, there's just a lot of things lacking for them, essentially. So this robust evidence base, essentially, that demonstrates the cost benefits that's building. But there's a real need for sort of more standardized sort of financial metrics that can help them compare projects, compare how these projects perform in different regions that bring together, you know, consistent and coherent numbers on the costs of projects, for example. There are a lot of areas of financial value that we talk about that Green Grey can provide in terms of avoided losses and, you know, reduced costs from local community conflict and reduced remediation costs and increased land values, you know, carbon potentially. There's there's a lot of different sort of financial metrics, but these aren't tracked they're not consistent. It's very much, you know, pilot to project to pilot to project at the moment. So I think to harness, you know, the growing interest that infrastructure investors might have in this, you know, this world of like net zero and nature positive investment, that there's a lot that needs to be done on sort of consolidating and increasing the coherence of, of the financial data around these projects as well. And Ido, how do you see the perspective that uh, Margot just explained sort of for the concrete element that you are working on to leveraging more funding and finance into activities like that? Is it primarily the regulatory framework or the incentives that need to be set or are there other ways of really getting this scaled up? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a skeptic ecologist. I think that the only way, the only way to push the industry in the right way is exactly what Margot said about funding. And, and if you provide funding schemes that are asking them to tick boxes that they never ticked before, in order to tap into those resources, they will be willing to invest and to explore and, and to do the effort. But this is one thing. And, and the other, um, specifically, as we talked about the lifespan of infrastructure, is what the asset owner can potentially gain from this. For us, it's a kind of a new concept that we're dealing with in, in the last two and a half, three years. So suddenly there is, uh, uh, as requirements for reducing CO2 uh, emissions are, are going and trickling into different industries, some of them will not be able 
to comply with with the requirements, they're starting to look for different solutions and the, the different technologies. And the most efficient system for carbon sequestrations are natural systems. So suddenly they have an interest in if can they can show that they can increase carbon sequestrations on their surface area on the water because of the marine life that will develop there, then suddenly there is there, they have a potential interest. Of course, it's requiring the uh, going into the discussion of blue carbon credit. But there's another discussion just uh, around the corner, and it's about the, the biodiversity. What is the value of biodiversity and promoting biodiversity? And how do you how do you measure biodiversity? How you compare between sites? This discussion can push the industry uh, tremendously because suddenly there asset is not just a liability in a way something that you need to invest in and and they can gain something from it and then there they be they, i think they will be willing to do the i'm sure they will be willing to do the step forward well marco you made a very good point about sort of project by project and how do we build this evidence base so do you have any suggestion of how we could start pooling some of these information and also the type of lessons and examples that Ido mentioned into really changing this more at a larger scale. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a few different things that are going on at the moment that are helping to improve the information base for investors and try and kind of harness this, you know, growing like maelstrom of information that we've got about the sector. Firstly, you know, I've, I've mentioned a couple of times the work that IASD, their infrastructure team is doing um, to develop a sort of, you know, investment hub or a sort of a, really a global database that is supporting the improved information on this, coming out of some of the work that Conservation International has done with their amazing community of practice on green great infrastructure. They're looking to develop this natural infrastructure engineering hub that really looks at, you know, how do we create a hub that provides both the information that's needed for the standards and the specifications, but also with an actual investor marketplace that would help sort of move towards more systematic data collection, um, sharing examples on green grade projects, you know, moving to a place where investors know where they need to go if they want to be finding projects and information to understand, you know, how do they start to get involved in the sector. But I think it's so interesting, you know, how we see all these funds emerging at the moment these sort of, you know, nature-based solutions funds or that are really focused on generating carbon credits. Um, Morova's got a lot of these in place with L'Oreal, with Orange. They've just announced a new one focused on nature with Caring and Lockheed Den. And I just, it really makes me wonder, like, how do you engage the big construction infrastructure companies on this? You know, why should Holcim and Bechtel and Veolia not also be thinking about a fund that could really look at developing this at an industry level. I think there's a real need to engage with those infrastructure companies on what are the investment opportunities here, you know, and how can they think about developing their own, you know, nature positive infrastructure funds or whatever it might be, but that really moves the needle just on investment that is going into this sector at an industry level, not just a pilot by pilot basis. Ido, what do you say to that? How do we change the industry? <laughs> you, you, you can uh, you can look at um, previous case study, specifically on the, on the concrete industry, on the Holcim and Heidenberg cement and, and Semex and others. 
And the acceptance of technologies that are um, basically injecting CO2 into the concrete during the curing process or during the uh, batching process, it was accepted beautifully. And, it, and it's really integrated into different concrete plants and batching plants, etc. Why is it? Because the end product was stronger and cheaper. It is really a step forward and and it got a lot of uh, a lot of exposure but the re- even if we were inject you know they would go through that process even if they inject something else into the concrete it was just the right thing to do for concrete we need as ecologists as environmental people to identify those pains within the industry and attack them and stop being polite and in a way i i don't think that a fund that will come from that part of the industry from the infrastructure will, will make a change. It will be an, another fund that will focus on environmental issues and, and will promote this. But in order for them to adapt a process, it needs to be cost effective. It needs to make a change. So either through uh, uh, regulations, funding, or cost effectiveness. And cost effectiveness can be also a more expensive product that will save uh, on the longer timescale. But, but then you need to identify who's the owner of the benefit. A construction company is building a port, and once the port is built, then there's another entity running it and, and will gain the value from building it. So we need to understand the market in order to force it in the right way. Thanks to my wonderful guests, Margot Clavis and Ido Seller. Next time, we're discussing the power dynamics of women, ocean and finance. What will it take for the finance system to change and really empower and benefit women to conserve our ocean? We will discuss some examples and highlight leading female entrepreneurs. Investing for Ocean Impact is a fresh air production on behalf of IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. It was produced by Phil Sansom. To find out more about the subject, visit our website, bluenaturalcapital.org. I'm Dorothy Herr. Thank you for listening. <laughs>